0: didn't you use a bass? Why did you use a cello to play that bass?
1: Well, as I said earlier, I was uh, simply adding four violins and two cellos to a group called The Check bass. see. Who, who had already recorded with a rhythm section, and all I was doing was known as sweetening. And uh, Kelly called me and says, you know, just cover the B-side so we won't be embarrassed. And, uh, that was the instrumentation we had available to us that day. So it was just what was there that day? It was just what so was there that you day. We
0: improvised. Yeah. Great. Tell me this. As an arranger, you seem to have to please a number of people. You've got to please the artist. You've got to please the producer if you're not the producer. You've got to please the AR and r guy. Uh, I've always felt this is an interesting kind of position that an arranger is put in where he, it's a job of diplomacy. Would you agree with that? It is a job of diplomacy, but
1: one of the things that I do, and I've been very lucky throughout the years, is I ask questions front. Uh, I, if, if there's a favorite song they like, uh, I ask them that. When they're talking to me, I'll on my little cassette recorder, and get information from them that way. As far as uh, pleasing the singer when there is a producer and an a man. By the way, the A&R man, uh, I, of course, it's over to the producer who's not usually at the session. Uh, the, uh, so, the producer should know how to please the A&R man. And so, all I have to do is please the producer. And uh, I found that once I have my conversations ahead of time and I fully understand or at least I think I fully understand what it is they're looking for, uh, they've always enjoyed what I've done. Now, there is one other thing too. I'm very fast at making changes in the studio and I work mostly with the Los Angeles musicians. and. Uh, we have, sometimes I've been asked to make changes. And so, uh, I'm noted for making changes within five minutes. And uh, and all I ever say to the guys in the band, I say, guys, I'm, I'm gonna make a change now. Don't sing, don't whistle, don't play for the next five minutes. And I'll, I'll write out my ideas, I'll get them down, and I'll dictate. I'll tell each person what the changes are, what they're going to play, and then We go
0: on and record it, and I find that I've always managed to please the producer that way. And of course, a lot of audiences too. Uh, (laughs) When you are in the situation where you make changes, have you ever been in a situation where a producer has asked you to make a change and you don't really agree with it, but you do it anyway? Yes. Uh, And in the old
1: days, uh, I. Would not even question that he wanted to change because I just figured okay, we just heard it the way I wanted it, he wants it different. That's okay on the craftsman. I was working and there was a very strange chord on the organ uh, on a, in the middle of this quasi rock uh, rap uh, American African record. And uh, And I don't say Afro-American, because it had uh, touches of, of uh, jazz, touches of swing, touches of pop, touches of African rhythms, touches of strange chords that had already been played before I came on the scene. And so the organ holds this chord for three beats, and I knew it was strange, but I knew I had met the fellow who had played it just prior to writing the arrangement, and I admired his musicianship and also the singer-like. So I figured, OK. I then copied that chord. That took, it took me longer to copy that chord than to write the rest of the arrangement and had the violins and, and the viola and the cello all spread out playing that chord for the three beats. And so when we were uh, on playback, the producer, uh, the executive producer, who had me the owner of the record company, said, Jimmy, isn't that a strange chord? Do uh, you think we should change it? And I said, uh, it's exactly what you're, what the organ played on, on the record. And that fellow happened to be sitting in the booth, and uh, the owner obviously respected him, and uh, he said, it's exactly the same notes as I played. And he says, I wish you'd, ask, I wish you'd let it stay on the record. But that was the only time I didn't
0: say, yes, I'll change it. All right, Great. Uh, it's, it's amazing, because talking to you, so many of the things that you're describing are things that have happened to me. And it's just like, um, that, this isn't relevant to our program, but I'm just telling you that. Um, now, let me just add. this is kind of a general kind of, oh, let's wait for him.
1: <laughs> are you finished? He's, he's you OK. Look, you
0: cool it baby. Oh. Oh, here we go. Tune. I hope you have the copyright on all these tunes. Well, they are public domain. Are they?
1: If you like it, you can have it.
0: Yeah, but if you do an arrangement of it, then it's yours.
1: That's right. Well, that's I'll true. Do an of yeah. it. That's
0: very good. Uh, that one is more accurate
1: than this one.
0: Okay.
1: At half past, that will do, uh, it's similar to
0: Big Ben. It'll yeah. do yeah. half of the, okay. uh, the whole thing. They don't call him Big Ben for nothing. That's right. It's going to happen in just to say, Is it? Now, this is just off the top of your head. What was the most fun session you've ever had?
1: I enjoy them. I I enjoy 99% of my sessions, and they're all fun, except for the 1%. And I can't even remember what that 1% was. But uh, uh, I just enjoy sessions. We have such great musicians uh, here. London, New York,
0: Chicago, San Francisco. Okay, let me me rephrase the question then. Let me ask, what was the most amusing thing or unusual thing that made you laugh at a session? Working with that uh,
1: same girl for the same company, Rianne Benson. Her record has not been released as of this interview. Uh, She's got a a great, great voice and and a really exotic appearance. She's uh, uh, half Welsh, half East Indian. (laughs) And uh, she's uh, had a bunch of songs, and they told me to just write something for the songs. one of the songs, of, of all the songs, had interesting concepts, including that strange organ chord. And I was very, what what I should call, legitimately musical about it. And then on one of the songs, which had kind of a, it used the word spy in it. And I decided to make it an old-fashioned melodrama, and I thought, I know the song so well, because that was one song where the chord progression was one that I digested very easily and very quickly, and I knew I could make changes on the session quickly if they didn't like what I wrote. And uh, uh, that's it, except for the overhang. Let's
0: wait for the reverb to die.
1: And so uh, I knew the chord progression very well particular song and I had digested and I knew if I had to make changes and also I was doing. Uh, we were recording six arrangements that day and uh, I thought that uh, I would try to do it on the first session and if necessary I could rewrite it between and they all laughed at it and so my sense of humor was accepted by them and that made me feel very good.
0: When you first started working at Imperial, uh, you were transcribing Fats Domino uh, records. Right, right. Now, uh, Dave Bartholomew, you must have become familiar with, with his work because he, he had done all the arrangements for Fats Domino. That's right. Uh, would you can you make a little comment about Dave Bartholomew's style? Oh, it it
1: fitted uh, uh, uh songs. You know that, that's. That's the best thing to say. I'll probably make a it's okay. A noise as no, I it's okay. Uh, am I still in view? Perfect. Because I think I was slumpy. Maybe I wasn't in view no, for no, the last No,
0: no, you were fabulous.
1: Well, good. I transcribed not the arrangements, but the songs, because in those days, uh, the only way you could copyright a song was by singing in leech. And it wasn't until that they allowed you to send in recordings and you could even send in uh, audio cassettes. And today you can still send in audio cassettes to get a song copyrighted. They asked for the best version of the existing song. Well, uh, at the time I was transcribing, the record had not hit the streets yet and my boss who owned Imperial Records, uh, Lou Chud, didn't want the record. To hit the streets without being copyrighted. <laughs> because then everybody could take the record and send it in and say, I want to copyright this song. So I copyrighted, I transcribed the song, the lyrics, and the melody. And in listening to the records, of course, I listened to Dave Bartholomew's arrangements, and I liked them very much. He uh, had the uh, uh, Usually he had two instruments in octaves, uh, or a unison, like a tenor sax and a trumpet, or uh, a tenor and an alto in octaves, and maybe there'd be a trombone down on the bottom, and they fitted the song. Now, that's the best thing you can say about an arranger, is that the arrangement fits the song, it enhances the song, it uh, makes you want to Buy the song
0: and, and buy the record and listen to it again. How much? Speaking of want to buy, how much does the marketplace of a song control what you write? It doesn't control
1: what I write, but the attitude of the people who hire me may be controlled by the marketplace. And I enjoy writing commercial arrangements because it's still music, and as far as I'm concerned, whenever I write, I'm writing music. It's like in the early days when I was producing and arranging for Ricky Nelson, there were some adults who said, is that considered to be rock and roll, and I said, yes, it is. They said, but it's
0: tasteful, I said, thank you, it's supposed to be. <laughs> well. That leads us beautifully, to Ricky Nielsen. Uh, you, you made a lot of records with him. Seventy-five. And uh, you developed a system of working with his band, uh, which was a little bit unusual because they didn't read. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, I'll go on from there then, okay. Yes, the uh, there were only two people in the band who read. One was the drummer and the other was... One of the three piano players we would bring in, uh, and that was Gene Garf, but Gene didn't play every session. We would also have Ray Johnson, who didn't read anything but chord symbols, and we would also have a fellow who became known as Leon Russell, who also did not read notes, but who read chord symbols. And so we had James Burton playing lead guitar, who read chord symbols. Uh, we had Joe Osborne, who read chord symbols later on, Joe And so, I developed a system of conducting the rehearsals. Uh, Rick would uh, normally show up later. He was uh, still working on his show, and we would sit down with the band and, and uh, two guitars, bass, drums, and piano, of course. And uh, I would start teaching them the songs that Ricky and I had already chosen earlier in the week. And so, no matter what key we were in, here was the one chord. Here was the four chord. Here was the V chord. Now, if we the key of C, that's C, that's F, that's G. Now, if we had an A minor chord, it was way over here. If we had like a B flat chord, it was way over here. If we had an E flat or an A flat chord, it was way, way over here. And if we had a chord like an E, e major chord or A a D chord would be slightly more this way, A minor this way, and so forth on down the cycle of fifths or cycle of fourths. And so, as we were recording, it would be the one chord, and then came the five chord. Just before the downbeat of the five chord, I'd move here, and then just before the downbeat of the four chord, I'd move here, and just before we come to the minor six chord, I'd be here. So, uh, and then of course there was the downbeat. So the one, two, three start. two, three, four, one, two, three, four, like that. And one time, Richie Frost, the drummer, said, Jimmy, it looks like you're blessing the band.
0: Well, I'm sure you were blessing the band in some kind yeah. of musical Somebody band. was blessing the band because we've got a lot of hit records. Uh, Ricky Nelson, I mean, he must have had a pretty good musical education from his dad.
1: Not so much from his dad, as that he himself had great ears, and his dad uh, furthered his musical education. Like Ricky wanted to learn guitar, so he learned guitar. Uh, Ricky played drums very naturally. Uh, whenever he needed lessons from a particular teacher, his dad would see to it that he would get the best teacher. So. One time, he uh, studied uh, jazz. I think it was with, uh, I'm going to make up a name out of my hat, but it it may have been Barney Kessel because Barney was a terrific uh, teacher. And so, one day, Ricky, uh, we would meet in his bungalow uh, over at the production company. And he didn't tell me who he was studying with. He says, Jane, I just learned a new style. It's called jazz. And I said,
0: that's great. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> well, notably, you've worked with Simon Garfunkel and Garfunkel on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe Simon on his own. And Simon right. on his own, yes. This, there is, of course, the story of your Grammy-winning work with them on the uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And I believe thats you said that that's the arrangement you did the absolute least on. It's the one I did the least on, and uh, at the time, uh, I was
1: I was called by uh, a artist and they said that uh, uh, Ernie Freeman uh, is putting in to, uh, for his arrangement on uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. I thought you were the only arranger who worked on it. I said, No, I worked on it, and so did Ernie. Oh, okay. And I said, Would you give two Grammys if you want Oh, yes. I said, in that case, I want to make a suggestion. I said, I know what I gave to Larry Neto to play on the piano, and what he did to it was really arranging. He, he expanded it, and uh, for the so for the first minute or so on the record, all you hear is Larry's solo piano. He did a marvelous job of what I handed him. And she says, well, uh, I'm run this by uh, Paul and. Uh, So she called me back 10 minutes later and said, I was able to reach Paul right away, Paul Simon, of course. And uh, uh, he said, uh, yeah, uh, Jimmy was right about uh, Ernie and Larry. And Jimmy also should get a uh, a Grammy if it wins. And uh, so should uh, Paul Simon and so should Arthur Garfunkel. And I said, would you give five Grammys if it wins? And she said, "Yes yes, we would. So came the night of the Grammys, and uh, it was at the Palladium, which was a, uh, which is a place on Sunset Strip. And in those days, we would sit around tables, and arranging was like the last one of the last uh, things to be awarded. And uh, so Paul and Artie spoke to me and said, "You know, Jimmy, we're very tired, and we've already won." of Grammys tonight, I and mean, we flew in early this morning, we're going to the hotel. If the arranging wins, would you mind bringing our Grammys over to our hotel?" I said, no, I don't mind. Well, it won, and uh, I I didn't go up to receive it because uh, uh, Gold, uh, I forget his first name, of uh, Columbia Records, went up to receive it on their behalf. But he handed me the two Grammys because he knew I was supposed to pick it up. And I went over to their hotel and uh, by then it was like 1 a.m. and uh, I went over to the desk clerk and I said uh, I would like to uh, speak with uh, uh, Paul Simon and Arthur Garfunkel. And they said, oh, I know, it's a bit late. I said, they're expecting me. So, uh, he connected me to the room and he said, yeah, Jimmy, what is it? I said, I've got two grannies for you. Oh, thanks a lot, Jimmy. Would you please leave it at the desk
0: Brilliant. Uh, well, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about one of my favorite arrangements that you did on the song, America. Uh, You've got some lovely things going on in there, and I'd like to know how you conceived of it first, and then how you put in the things that you put in.
1: Uh, I like to work with lyrics and melody, of course, but the lyrics affect me very much. Now, <clears throat> I have to digress and start off with the song called Old Friends. And by the way, when I thank Paul for recommending me for uh, uh, my minimum work on Bridge Over Troubled Water, he said, Jimmy, you should have got a Grammy for Old Friends, but you didn't. He says, and this hopefully will make up for it. Anyway, I met Simon and Garfunkel because of Old Friends. And uh, this uh, fellow named Ben Barrett says, "Uh, Jimmy, I'm working with Simon and Garfunkel. uh, they may want you to do some arranging, so go over to the hotel and meet them." So I went over there, and I had my case in one hand and my uh, recorder in the other. In the old days, I had an old in and sack. And uh, I said, put it down. I said, oh, they're me. Okay. They said, we've been working with these old people. Uh, okay. And uh, so we want to talk to you about these old people. And they did. And they said, now we'll call you again. I thought, okay. Probably didn't pass the audition. I picked up my attaché case and my recorder and I left. About a week later, they called me, come on over. So I came in with my attaché case and my recorded and said, put it down. They said, we're going to play these voices of old people that we have recorded. And they did uh, listen to it. And some of them were very touching the way they, they recorded these voices. They went to old age homes. They went to people on park benches that looked the right age. And they recorded them talking. And uh, he said, we'll call you. Then about three days later, Paul called me and says, come on, I'll we'll bring you a recorder. we will play you the song. So he says, I think you know what we want. Here's how the song goes. And he played it for me. And so then I wrote that arrangement. And after that, they gave me America. And uh, he played that for me, singing, playing guitar. Actually, uh, both of them singing, playing. Paul playing guitar, both of them singing, and uh, I don't know why I thought of the notes I did, but they all popped out of my head. You know, uh, you being an arranger would know there's there's a higher power out there, there's a universal mind there. I've heard all of these things, and I believe all of it. And when the see the birds are singing, and not that statement. Uh, there, it just I listen to the song and I hear it and I try to think of what I'm going to write, but I'm not trying too hard to think of what I'm going to write. I just keep listening to the song and suddenly, the notes pop into my head, I jot them down on paper. I've always loved French horns. I've always loved strings. I love having them both on the same record.
0: That's what I did on America. Let me ask about one specific thing on that record, there's a a beautiful It sounds to me like it's an electric violin. Where it's where he says something on the bus, making the names, the faces, something like that. I thought the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. Now, right there, you've got this absolutely beautiful, very unusual, uh, sort of half jazzy, half uh, weird electric violin line that sort of weaves through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you remember that, and and how did you come up with it, if you do remember it?
1: Uh, I don't specifically remember it, but uh, uh, I do know that uh, a line like that, you know, slide, would uh, definitely enable me to think of something uh, weird. And Roy Halley, the engineer, uh, would have had a lot to do with that. I know we did not use an electric violin, so I believe that uh, Roy simply uh, EQ'd it and uh, threw it out of phase. I know, you know, it's funny, I never thought about that line until you just asked me about it, but when we worked on Keep the Customer Satisfied, Roy knew how to throw the microphones out of phase. At that time, phasers, as they are known today, were not in existence. And so Roy knew how to take a tone and make it sound strange. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I wrote the line, he he added the strange quality to it.
0: Well, that leads me to another question. How much would you say that technology is a part of an arrangement?
1: Nowadays, it has become quite important. Now, if you're talking about the, uh, quote, legitimate sounds, which John Williams is getting on these movies. Uh, Technology has very little to do with that, unless you want to have a a strange gong sound or a cymbal sound, or or you want to get an artificial sound. Uh, So in the traditional writing, not that much, except of course the ability to record has improved so well. That uh, you know, microphones and uh, uh, boards are cleaner now. Recording boards. But regarding microphones, a lot of people have uh, gone back to using the old-fashioned mics because they're warmer. Uh, but the combination of microphones does uh, those, those does marvelous thing. That's from the technical, technological part of recording. But as far as creating music, um, today. Uh, and nowadays, when I'm asked to score a film, a movie, a TV movie, something of that nature, their budget either allows them for a large orchestra, on um, the style of John Williams, James Horner, and, and uh, those people, or they go to the other extreme. Their budget doesn't allow any instruments, or maybe one real instrument. For instance, I, I did a. Uh, TV movie where they wanted all synthesizers, but they didn't want one wild, they, they loved Skunk Baxter. They said, can you get him? And I said, yeah, he's triple scale. they said, okay, we'll pay for him. So his, his real name is Jeff, but everybody knows Skunk Baxter. Fantastic guitar player. So I had him come into my studio downstairs and uh, He plugged in directly and uh, managed to get all of his fuzz sounds through the now well-known equipment that can do that. But the first time I recorded with the skunk Jeff Baxter was many years ago, where in order for him to get the great sound with the slight touch of distortion on it, he brought in a Marshall amp that was about yay tall off the floor, Put it in the studio, ran a long chord from the studio to the booth, closed the door, and then played it as loud as possible. Uh, luckily it didn't deafen us because there we were all sitting in the booth. And uh, nowadays you can get that same sound off of a little box. Uh, as far as the continuing the answer to your question, depends on what the project calls for. If you're gonna do uh, the kids buying the modern records expect to hear a certain amount of technology on the record. They want to hear a certain amount of synthesized sound because there's so many synthesized sounds, uh, sampled synthesized sounds on so many hit records.
0: You've you worked with Barry Manlow? Yes. Now, he's a pretty competent arranger. Oh, he's a
1: very competent arranger. He's wonderful. Alright, so Barry was doing a... Uh, TV special. And uh, I was conducting and also writing arrangements for that particular orchestra. And one of them was a rearrangement of at the Copa. Barry was sitting playing second piano. And uh, so here I was conducting. The arrangement that was being played for the first time of my arrangement of, or at the Copa that had previously been arranged by Arnie Butler and uh, Barry. And Barry, of course, wrote the song. There's Barry sitting about five feet from me at the piano. We went through the entire arrangement, ran it all down, I made a few little corrections, and after it was all over, I looked at Barry and he says, that's great, Jimmy, except every time we come to that particular G uh, in every eighth bar, I want you to make it a G seventh, not a G ninth. Oh, okay, Barry. That was amazing because I have worked with musicians who were somewhat arrangers who would stop me in the middle of the performance every time the chord was not perfect according to their liking. What he did was allow me to go through it, which saved time. He then told me the one correction, which saved time. I then gave it to the orchestra, to those people who may not have heard his comment, and he's just a wonderful guy. I've got another story about him, just not musical, but I was working with him on several different albums, and on this one occasion uh, we brought in a vocal group, and two of the people in the vocal group he didn't know. I later on learned that he just couldn't stand having people in booth he didn't know. He wasn't going to kick these singers out because I had hired him as part of the background, you know. So finally he walked up and said, hi, I'm Barry Mavillow, what's your name? Now he knew them. <laughs> uh,
0: you did the song, you did the song uh, even now? Yes, I did the arrangement. Right, so can you tell me a little bit about I mean that's a beautiful example. I think of, you know, the pop ballad. So very, uh, uh, Give me my head on those.
1: Just, just, uh, just write it, Jimmy. You know, write whatever comes into your head. He was a very nice fellow. I want to talk about another arranger, who told me every note to write. Uh, Bert Bacharach was doing something with Ricky Nelson called the Other Side, and said, so, Jimmy, I want you to do uh, two charts for me. I said, sure. So I came over to his house. He practically sang and played every note that he wanted in the arrangements. I said, Bert, you know everything you want. Why don't you write? He says, because I will have both of these arrangements written in three days, and you're going to have them both ready tomorrow. I said, oh. <laughs>
0: That explains it. Yeah. That explains
1: it. Nice guy. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and, and did you do a lot of other work for him? No. That was, uh, that was the only time, and I guess the reason he called me in is because he was doing something with Ricky Nelson and because he was, it had some, uh, something also to do with a uh, TV show and he was on a deadline. When he does his own recordings, he sets his own deadlines and he can do.
0: Uh, let's talk about somebody else that uh, I can't go away without asking about, and that is your work with Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. Wonderful people.
1: Very, uh, very laid back guys.
0: Uh, Feeling a bit tired. Thinking of getting an early night tonight? Forget it, because I'm Richard Niles, and instead of sleeping, you could be lying in bed listening to my podcast, Radio Richard. Intriguing interviews and pulsating performances from master musicians like Chick Corea, Barry Manilow, Lyle Mays, and Michael McDonald. Hey girl, I want you to know I'm gone. Don't be a wimp. You can sleep anytime. Don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard.